0: good morning everyone welcome to day 46 of the 7am novelist 50-day writing challenge first draft edition i'm michelle hoover your host and today um, i'm at the wonderful novel incubator writers retreat in bourne massachusetts and so i have one of the our students live with us today and we also have a, a, a audience in the room um, and so we'll see how this goes uh, yesterday we were talking about ending tricks and today will be similar but i really want to think about how finding your ending and what an ending is, is determined by the the full book. Um, And how um, that you actually need to know your ending or even having written your ending, um, when you go back to revise and be able to, to work through the full book again. So we've got Christine Murphy back on with us today. Um, Christine, tell us about yourself. You're like you're like a language genius.
1: Yeah, sure. Let's go with, I love that word. Um, no, that's very false. Um, so I am a grubby. I completed the novel incubator with Michelle last year. And I also completed before that, the novel generator with Henrietta Lazaridis, who's on, if you see her in the chat, I have to give a quick little shout out. Henrietta has is a totally brilliant writer and teacher, and she has a new book coming out, Terra Nova, um, early December, and December everyone should six. Des- yep. everyone should buy it and read it because I know it's going to be amazing. And if you pre-order. Um, that helps the writer because the bookstores understand that people are excited about this book. So they get more in, so more people can see it, more people can buy it. So go buy Henrietta's book.
0: This is why I love Christine, because she wants to talk about other people instead about herself. So (laughs) she is actually signed with an agent with her novel. Her novel is this raging, funny, amazing um, book. And so she herself has gone through the revision process multiple times. She actually is still going through the revision process with the feedback from the agent. She knows that she's going to have more revision upcoming with when she sells it to uh, an editor. And that's just kind of part of the process. You should always expect that revision every
1: single time. So Christine, you said you know your endings. I do. So I I come up with... A character and or a scenario just kind of bubbles in my head. And then I get an ending. And once I have the ending, it can be an image. Uh, It's often a full scene. Um, Then I think, oh, that's awesome. And I want to begin the book, I want to write towards that that guiding light i want to earn that payoff really is the way the way the endings come to mind for me yeah yeah
0: and so and there are a lot of writers who yeah that you have to get to the end you have to understand what the ending is about even to understand what you need to plant in the opening pages so you've revised your opening pages a number of times oh my god
1: so many times and how
0: have you decided what you absolutely need in your opening pages from where the book
1: ends that's a really good question I think the ending has to be earned anything in the ending you have to have worked towards so that it makes sense for it to be there. If you want some big philosophical payoff, you have to earn that, you know, Ian McCallum's atonement has this somewhat lengthy rumination at the end of a 600 page book. He earns that through a very compelling narrative, that ends with that point, the beginning, you have to have everything that's going to come in the book in the beginning. So it's a little bit, I think I made a sweater analogy the last time I was on, I think in sweaters, you know, when you cast on your stitches to start a project, you have to have enough stitches cast on for the entire project. Right. And then when you finish a project, you have to make sure you bind off every stitch. Otherwise you'll drop a few and the sweater will fall apart. Yeah. So anything that you're going to have in the book, big themes, big, um, ideas that needs to be at least hinted at in the beginning. Yeah. And then however you want your ending to be, if you have an idea ahead of time, like I do, or you come up with what feels like a really, um, exciting poetic ending, you have to make sure that you work your way towards it. I don't think everything in the book needs to appear in the ending, but the ending has to fit for the book. Yeah. And they
0: say the first five pages of a novel, really has to plant all the seeds for the full novel. So, but if you don't know your novel, how do you plant those seeds?
1: You know, I really like when I'm, Drafting, which for me is like the first five or six drafts. I write a lot of drafts. I like to start, it's funny. I've noticed this with a couple of different books. I start with a party because it gets all the characters in the room. I can do quick little vignettes of who they are. I can put them in juxtaposition with each other and I can have them talking about a situation and it's not good, it's clunky, it's awkward but it serves its purpose and I'm off to the races. Um, We would call this a throwaway cast on in knitting, if anyone is really wanting to follow the knitting metaphor. Um, And then my endings, I I have in mind, so I don't tend to revise the endings very much. The beginnings, you know, they're, they're crappy, they're bad, but I don't care. Like I do it to give myself like a starting ground. And then I work on the book and I go back and I revise the opening and I work on the book and I revise the opening. And Probably the opening is the part that I revise the most. And when I say opening, I mean both the first act, but also um, those first five pages.
0: Because you got started with the party, but you're no longer using
1: the party for your beginning. Yeah. Now the party's still in there, but it's totally revamped. Um, But I kept, so I opened with a party scene. Henrietta can attest to this because I did this in Novel Generator. Michelle can attest to this because I did this in Incubator. I was on draft maybe seven or eight when I finally dumped that opening party scene and I knew it wasn't working, but I didn't beat myself up over it. Cause I was like, you know what? It gets the job done for the purpose of writing the whole book. And I'm going to go back and figure out what needs to happen there to make it actually be a good, a good opening. Um, and I think for some people they have that same approach with endings. They're like, okay, I wrote an ending. It sucks that's fine. Don't worry about it. Like you finished a draft. Okay. So now go back and keep working on the book. And if maybe the ending for you is something you revise every draft, totally fine. You know, I think don't get hung up on, I think the challenge with openings and endings is they're, they're your first and last time that you can make an impact with the reader. So we put a lot of weight on them whatever, man, like get, get an opening that you can work on the book, get an ending that you can say, okay, I'm going to take like a couple weeks off and then revise the book. And then those two parts of the book, you will be revising a million times. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, some of the things to think about in terms of endings is so one idea is, um, the idea of poetic justice. And I think, um, I don't particularly like to talk about, well, I will sometimes talk about publishing. I don't particularly like to weigh my students down with what the market will take and what the market won't take, because that kind of pisses me off. But um, the American, at least the American publishing world is highly Puritan um, as our whole culture is. And so um, I know those are. we have a lot of international listeners, too. Um, but so this idea of poetic justice becomes very important to um. that and to the readership in the united states at least i know damn those puritans patricia says (laughs) um so james fry in his book how to write a damn good novel he says he talks about poetic justice he says what is justice justice is vindicating the innocent punishing the guilty and rewarding the virtuous poetic justice is punishment that fits the crime or vindication that fits the virtue to be poetic the agency dispensing the justice must be hidden. If the police do it, it isn't poetic. So he gives them a few examples. A man drowns his old spinster aunt in a bathtub. With the insurance money, he buys a boat, which then sinks, he drowns. This is poetic justice because the agency, fate, accident, the Lord of the universe, has meted out the justice, is not apparent, and the punishment drowning fits the crime, murder by drowning. And so that's also interesting too because you have a parallel scene and, and, you're, and you're using that kind of slant rhyme that I've talked about before. And so those kinds of those kinds of uh, thematic repetitions can be really interesting, but thematic rep- a repetition that's changed and built on an earlier um, a version of the theme. Um, And then he also talks about, suppose an ambitious man craves wealth, power and glory. He dreams of the day when he and his wife can sit back on top of the heap and bask in their wealth but his ambition hardens his heart. And by the time he has made it to the top, crushing all his competitors, his wife has left him for a gentler, kinder man. He has achieved his goals, but the achievement is empty. That too is poetic justice. If you can't give full vindication to the innocent or full rewards to the virtuous, let them at least have a slice of the pie. Readers crave to see justice done. Say you're writing a story about oppression, your hero, a textile worker in a sweatshop is trying to organize a union. The union is smashed, your hero has failed. In the court of Puesta justice, your villains have won. But if your hero has found courage, self-respect and the love of a good woman, he has won something even more valuable. And there can be victories at other textile factories, other wars to fight and win. Even in death, a character can win something. Hamlet had his vengeance. Um, so in terms of like, actually, uh, Christine, I don't know if you'd be able to talk about it, but your book deals a lot with justice. Mm. And how did you, did you feel the pressure of readership on what justice is supposed to be, or even this idea of poetic justice in determining how it ended?
1: Yeah. So, and trigger warning guys, I know it's 7am. Um, my book is all, is looking at rape. And, um, so in the world, in the real world, there is very minimal justice for sexual assault survivors, right? Like I love the Me Too movement, it was great. It didn't actually make a lot of head roads. Um, so when you're talking about a situation where there is no justice, it is very tempting to create a fictional narrative to address that, to balance it. And that we have this um, very kind of B-list, common genre of rape, revenge narratives. And um, they're, they're transparent, right? Like I get it, I get why you'd want to create that story because in reality you have none of that. So my book is trying to push away at this rape revenge narrative. The challenge is a book needs to have a satisfying ending. And when you're talking, as Michelle just read, about oppression, about persecution, about violence that goes unpunished, how do you create a satisfying ending that does not kind of cater to this Aristelian? Aristotelian, how do I? Aristotle's yeah, <laughs> apostrophe S mm-hmm. notion of completion, which is really about um, persecuting the bad, get, bringing justice to the virtuous and, and letting people sort of balance the scales. And now we can all move on. You know, it, it was interesting because the subject matter explicitly pointed out that that doesn't happen, but the context of a novel requires an element of that. So, you know, my challenge with my ending was thinking, how can I give a satisfying conclusion where there's a resolution, I won't use the word justice, a a, some sort of resolution for my character that doesn't contradict everything I've said before. So for example, spoiler alert, I was explicit in that the rapist in the story was going to be, his life would be at risk and he would not die. And he's not going to jail for being a rapist. I, I was like, nope, he's got to live. He's got to go on with his life. Everything's groovy because that like t- is what tends to happen. Um, and then I thought, well, this is bad. I've created this guy and he sucks. Like you want him to die. But I was like, nope, nope, he's going to live. So so I set myself a tricky a tricky situation.
0: Yeah, it's hard because I think a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people would think poetic justice and they'd be like, well, this is bullshit because yeah. life isn't like this, um, particularly for some Uh, people, they're, they're, you know, particularly marginalized folks, there's not, that's just just not their worldview because they have not received justice. Um, So so I think it's interesting to think about this might be what readership is looking for. So how can you play with that, use that, undermine that, go against it in some way to actually say something? Um,
1: Yeah, and I think this is where taking a character-driven approach to your story. I mean, it, it, much like in reality, systems fail us, whether they are legal or, um, you know, career, whatever. Like institutions do not always support, protect, help individuals. So when you find yourself in that situation, which I think we all do at least once, does that mean you everything is poo-poo? No, you find a way to have a resolution, have a growth, have a support that you recognize the institution has totally dropped the ball. Maybe it always drops the ball. And probably there is a level of hypocrisy there. And there's a naivete in believing that, oh, no, they're here to help. And when they don't help, you're kind of heartbroken. And then you step out and you realize, oh, no, that's actually not what they're there for. So there can be a awareness building on the part of the character. And then there can be a, you can create other systems. You can have support characters. You can have a a realization, a personal growth for the character, that there is a resolution. There is a justice in the sense that the narrative is completed and she or he can move on in some way. And I think you can make it Dare I say, optimistic? Even when the 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 larger the people places the that are supposed to do this job don't, and maybe never have, you can still create a narrative that's very specific that gets at a general truth of you know, just because something went to hell over here doesn't mean you have to get dragged down with it. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so I also think a lot of um, you've got a lot of LGBTQ. Uh, plus writers and a lot of Black Indigenous uh, writer and writers of color. That's why they're also working in fantasy, totally, totally. or that whole Afrofuturism movement, which is amazing yeah. because they they don't want to work within the the system of the realistic world. And so they're creating a world in which possibly justice is, they can reframe that and and reuse it, which is really necessary and really really interesting. Okay, some other things to think about ending. Um, uh, Christine has already gone there with Aristotle. So um, a few things that I always think about in terms of Aristotle's poetics, Um, And it's actually, if you ever try reading it, it's a much easier read than you might think. (laughs) Um, The style is actually much more contemporary than you might actually think. So Aristotle says that the payoff, the good payoff at the end of the story is a kind of cathartic moment for the audience. um, And as well as, well, it's a cathartic moment for the audience that we undergo an an experience oftentimes in tragedy and that we, we feel something or we undergo something that has touched something in our own experience and brought us through that experience and then out of that experience. So he also talks about the difference between pity versus fear. Mm. And for me, um, and fear is the is probably the thing that you really wanna go for more than pity. So let's say that you have a character who um, has lost a leg and his mother has thrown him out and he, I don't know, his dog has left him or any number of awful things.
1: Country Western songs. Yeah, country
0: Western song okay, that character has got um, you know, flaws and weaknesses, but there are flaws and weaknesses that have been laid on him um, from the world. And you can definitely have characters like that, but the only issue could be that the reader, we feel sorry for him, we feel pity for him, but we also keep him at a distance mm-hmm. a little bit versus a character. So maybe that same character exists and yet there's something in his own brokenness And there's some culpability even in his own situation that we're like, oh, I have that brokenness. Mm -hmm. I have that same flaw. I have that same inner weakness. I have that same wound and I could have made the same exact mistakes that he could have Mm -hmm. and wind up in the same place. And that is fear so that we see ourselves in the character, instead of pushing them away from us and keeping them over at a distance. Oh, poor man, poor man. We're like, oh shoot, he's like me. And um, and there's that, that again, that fear, like I could have gone in the same direction. I could still go in the same direction. And so that is gonna get inside your reader much more closely and, and give a greater effect inside your reader than pity. Um, Aristotle also talks about uh, the reversal of a situation. And so one famous reversal is in Oedipus. Um, Oedipus is looking for the king's killer. And in the end he discovers that he is actually the king's killer and he gouges out his eyes and leaves town. And it's it's a very happy um, story. Um, so he, and so Aristotle, so you're, you're you're expecting one thing that the the plot is going in one direction, it actually then turns on its head and almost turns backwards and points back to the protagonist in Mm -hmm. some way. And so that's Aristotle talks about as a very satisfying ending. There's another way you can do reversal though. Um, And Lynn Barrett, who teaches down in Florida um, and is one of my favorite teachers, she talks about Hansel and Gretel. And I might've mentioned this before, I've been mentioning this story a lot because you can learn a lot from fairy tales. at the beginning of Hansel and Gretel, look at the power dynamics. So you've got, you've got the stepmother who's ruling the, the roost um, and forcing the kids out into the woods. You've got the, the father who's, he's kind of a weak father, but he's certainly got some say over the kids um, and they're gonna do what, they, what he says. And then you've got Hansel and he's got more say than Gretel because he's the one that p- leads the plan with the breadcrumbs. And he's the one that's, that's leading the way. And Gretel's just kind of following along. And you'll notice if you actually read the story, she, she cries a lot, it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the story, the stepmother is dead. The father is like a sad little idiot because the kids bring back all this money. And so they actually have saved the day. And Gretel has also saved the day. She's the one that's gotten, she's the one that's pushed the witch in the oven. She's the one that's gotten um, Hanzo out of that cage. And there's also a weird scene that no one remembers about a duck in which she devises a plan with a duck to get across a lake. So no one remembers that part of the story. Anyway, the thing to think about is at the end of the story, the whole power dynamic has switched on its head. And you've got Gretel, uh, Greta, who has the most power. And then you've got Hansel, then the father, and then the stepmother is dead. And so that creates a really satisfying ending. And it's kind of a system that you're creating through the full story. Um, And so that's something to think about. Um, How do you think about power dynamics? Because that also has a lot to do with poetic justice, basically i think your protagonist is searching to gain regain power yeah because so they go through the inciting incident it it knocks them off their game they have to do something they have to search some for something they've usually been unempowered at the beginning and they're searching to get whatever that however they frame that idea of power and that's what they're searching for the whole book and so at the the end i think part of the idea of poetic justice and reversal and power is all about where the character's at at the end in terms of being satisfied with who they are or their station in life or, or something. To have you, did you think about that? Because you have a lot of power dynamics in your book. Like has your character by the end gained power?
1: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting that Hansel and Gretel, a story because that is, the power is very explicit. It is power based on action. You know, Gretel saves the day. She starts off disempowered and, and quite passive and ends up showing her power through action. Saves a brother, kills the witch, carries all the money home. It's like, dad, great. Um, I think one of the ways you can create a sense of resolution with characters when you are writing about a subject where you don't want this poetic justice, everything's good. The yeah. bad guy goes to jail. The good guy becomes king is to look at the internal power of the character. So my character's arc, I was really struggling with for again, like six or seven drafts. Um, what What is her arc? And what I realized was her arc is she starts the book having been thrown off course and her arc is to come back to who she is by resisting the push to become something other than who she is. So her arc in that sense was, I suppose, in reverse or more full circle. Um, and the power is not, I mean, there's an exciting action scene at the end. So physically, yes, there's an element of power displayed, but. It is not, for example, institutional. Like the bad right. guy does not go to jail. He does not have any consequences in his life. And I actually kind of twist the knife a little bit and imply that he he people like him more because he just had this harrowing experience and he survived it and like, oh my God, what a brave victim, like just to be a bitch. Um, that's <laughs> what I did as a writer. Um, so when we talk about power, I think reversing power dynamics is brilliant and you can do it in a way while still highlighting profound inequity and injustice Um, or just a more realistic approach to the world. I mean I love a happy ending and I think some books work really well with that regard. But even when you look at, for example, a lot of murder mysteries, thrillers, you know, those very specific genre conventions, for the most part, you need to have a resolution at the end, who killed him, you know, and maybe why they did it. Well, in many of those books, you do have that, you have that material resolution, but there is a greater loss. So you can play with this. You can have, you can win the concrete situation, you can solve the crime, but have lost, your character can have lost everything in the process. That has a very different sense of an ending than if you have a character who doesn't win in any material sense. The whole, they're striving to get this job, they're striving to solve this crime. And by the end of the book, they don't, they don't achieve that, but they win something much greater. And that's where I think, you know, the the concrete or the the plot versus the character and the internal development separate and you can play with those two things.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So we have a a question in the chat is, of course, the concept of pity versus fear is fascinating. Can you give another example of that or an impact on the reader? I think any good book is really about more about fear because it's about, you know, you you get this in workshop all the time, like, oh, I want the character to be relatable. I want the character to be relatable. And the problem with relatability is that doesn't mean that, like, for me, that the character is going to be white, blonde, blue-eyed, short, <laughs> with weirdly long fingers, like, whatever, you know, um, I do. They <laughs> are. Um, uh, relatability is about... Uh, those deeper yearnings of belonging, of of community, of love, and also those deeper fears um, of of not belonging, of of not succeeding, or not or being invisible. You know, so so a lot of these things, these kind of larger themes, with beneath the characters, is what I is what really makes them relatable. And I've said this before. I remember when I was teaching at Brandeis, I had a, a Filipino student, and she um, she was teeny; she was smaller than me. Um, and I asked, okay, what character in literature have you been able to relate to the most? And she said Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um now physically everything you know she um is, was completely different than her um and and yet she related to his loneliness mm-hmm. his being an outcast his search for love his search for family so when you when you're looking at pity versus fear you're also looking at you're looking for that relatability that inner resonance relatability. Uh, because again, that's what brings us closer to the character. And also they're making the same mistakes that we do. So because they because they so yearn for love and because they so yearn for family, they will do possibly bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can see, gosh, if I if I allow this feeling to carry me too far, I could have gone there as well. And I always push my, my um, writers that I work with to have some compassion for their characters, even, even characters that do bad things. Like you might not have done that final action that becomes a crime or, or becomes whatever you know, bad thing they did, but, but try to understand what got them to that point of decision. And it's usually a very human thing that you can relate us to. Um, and that's also the fear because we could um we understand that pressure. And we understand that, gosh, you know, I there there are moments in my life that I just felt so vulnerable. And I I I might have just done anything. I might have just broken through into something. I made a different decision, but I at least understand that person and how they got to that that moment, that cliff. Um, and, and we're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta be careful because I could have, I could have gone that that way as well. Yeah. So basically, I think any good novel would would contain that that bit of fear, because, again, that's that's it's about a relatability question.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you talk. It reminds me of how I feel like we've had quite this pop cultural rush of um, full narratives. Detailing a um villain's backstory. Yeah. So there was the Joker movie that came out, like how did the Batman's Joker become the Joker? Um, Game of Thrones, spoiler alert for the final season, was about how does this hero become a bad guy? Um, and, and I've seen a bunch of others. Um that's a great example of a, going towards an ending because we know who this person is. Like if you want to write the backstory of Hannibal Lecter, okay, awesome. Well the easiest way to set up a fascinating arc is to make Hannibal Lecter like like a Boy Scout, like a really sweet guy who everybody loves because the author knows and the reader knows this is where we're going. And it's like, how's he going to do that? Um, Or like we talked about last time I was on like Titanic, we know the boat goes down. Okay, so if you go to a movie called Titanic, what is the author doing along the way? Because we actually know the ending, but we know the ending in a very concrete way we know that batman's joker is looney tunes right we know the titanic boat ships fine so you know the material ending but how incredibly dissatisfying if by the end of the movie you were like okay joker's crazy he went off the rocket he's not whatever he becomes jack nicholson okay really you want an ending which like michelle says is fear-based and and tragic. I think not to go on a tangent, that's where Game of Thrones really failed because I don't think we felt the tragedy of um, the blonde chick becoming again, spoilers all over the place, becoming a bad guy. Um, And I never saw that Joker movie, but you know, I think if you're going to have some sort of devastating ending again, you've got to earn it. You've got to have us, the reader thinking If you wanna end in a really dark place without losing your reader, you need to make sure that you bring them along to that dark place. And in my opinion, the only way to do that is to make sure you maintain like a close emotional connection with your character. And we talked before about how the specific is the path to the general. So if you're writing, and I think these villain backstories tend to be these like sweeping Mm -hmm. narratives about, oh, the challenge of being human and the destruction of man and like, okay, fine, great, groovy. You can't tell a story that big without getting very, very, very precise about one person falling down, like death of a salesman kind of approach. You have to only focus on one person, ideally who starts off in a fairly prosaic way so that he can build his hero quest or villain quest, whatever, whatever the approach is, because any like big, big ending, you have to, you've got a lot of work to earn that big ending. Yeah, And even a small ending, it needs to be impactful. So if your ending's going to feel quite muted, like um, Middlemarch, it, it's the, the, the most beautiful paragraph about the, the value of little lives. That is a very quiet ending after a 1200 page novel. It's, it's a really interesting choice that George Eliot made there, but it also is in keeping with the novel, because at no point does she make some grand sweeping epic statement across the book, even though the book itself is a grand sweeping epic story.
0: And God, does she make mistakes, intellectual <laughs> mistakes, yeah. mistakes out of love, mistakes yeah. out of loneliness. Yeah. OK, we're going to have to go. Christine and I are going to be writing today all day. It's, it's that's all we're doing. Yay. So I want to, I want you guys to get to your desk and get some good writing done. Um, Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how to deal with feedback and when when to get it. Um, And in uh, November 20th, we're also going to talk uh, about how to uh, keeping the faith, how to keep working through multiple drafts and multiple bad feedback sessions possibly. Um, And then uh, we're just going to continue on our way out of our 50 days to try to get you guys encouraged and, and writing and forward-looking. Okay, so if you support what you, we're doing, please share, follow, and rate our 7AM Novelist podcast on Substack and other podcast platforms. You can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. We are almost at the end of these 50 days, but I will most likely be starting something else up in the spring. So you probably, if you subscribe to Substack, you get uh, notices for that as well. Okay, Go so buy Henrietta's book. To yes, go buy it to Terra Nova. Terra Nova by Henrietta, Henrietta. Henrietta Lazaridis. Yeah. All oh, right, well. everyone. Have a great day.
1: Like a life inside the wind, and you go where it tells you to go, but you never wonder why there isn't nothing here.